Welcome to another episode of The Science of Therapy. I'm Amelia. And I'm Maddie. I'm a clinical psychologist and researcher at Macquarie University. Me too. And today we're bringing you uh, something a little bit different. Yeah. We thought we'd experiment with what we're going to call explainer episodes. Mm -hmm. And we've picked an initial area of explaining that both of us are quite passionate about and spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about um, our desks are right next to each other at work (laughs) so there's a lot of banter about evidence-based psychotherapy. Mm. I think our boss is probably annoyed at us by now. He enjoys the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we're going to go on a bit of a journey about what we think is really important to know about evidence-based psychotherapy, what the evidence looks like, how to interpret the results of a clinical trial, for example, and use those results to make decisions in your day-to-day practice. And we'll also talk about, I guess, some of the limitations of the way evidence is generated in psychotherapy. Um, We know that the research world isn't the be-all and the end-all and a lot of clinicians practicing um, might take research results with a grain of salt, which is very understandable considering Mm. the limitations of of randomised controlled trials. Etc. Yeah, the the one thing that we want to kind of make sure that everyone can take away from this episode is how do you know that your therapy is going to be effective? Mm. And how do you know that the evidence that you're basing your decisions on is robust? Exactly. Yeah. So imagine you have a client with depression. You've treated them for, I don't know, eight sessions. You gave them a self-report questionnaire that measures their depression symptoms. Session one, Maybe session, I don't know, in the middle, session four, and then at the end. And what do you know? It went down. So their symptoms have improved. Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree that that would mean that their symptoms have improved, don't you think? If their scores went down. Their scores went down. Yeah. Lovely. After eight sessions. Yeah. I'm a very effective therapist. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Does that mean that the treatment made their symptoms go down? As in, does that mean that the treatment worked? Yes. Not exactly. Why not? I think that's one explanation. And I think as therapists, we are trained to recognize the active ingredients of our therapy being mostly the treatments that we choose. And typically that is the skills and the strategies that the clients obtain during the course of therapy. Like they've learned to challenge unhelpful thinking or do things that are scary. Or pay attention to their thoughts non-judgmentally with, you know, equanimity if you went down a mindfulness route. So we do spend a lot of time focusing on the skills and it's highly likely that skills, practice and acquisition explain some of their improvement, but it doesn't explain everything. Mm -hmm. When you capture somebody's symptoms during the course of any treatment before and after, There are a lot of reasons that they improve. Which one shall we pick first? I don't know. It's like being in a candy store. You're like, which one will I pick? Let's start from the ground floor. From the bottom, which I would say is time. Okay. Yeah, let's go with time. So time has passed. How is time an ingredient in therapy? Well, if you took somebody in the general public and you measured their symptoms of depression and you happened to find somebody who was quite depressed and then they did nothing Mm. and then you measured them sometime later and let's say for the purpose of making this easy you measured 10 people before and after their scores will go down Mm. time is actually one of the most powerful 
healers. Yeah. People will naturally remit. We don't often talk about that because that actually flies in the face of of explaining why we need to give people therapy. But actually time does work. Yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it, that just not doing anything means that someone's symptoms will will resolve. It could be due to a range of different factors. Hmm. And this is the thing, we can't really capture what happens in time. Either sometimes people's, maybe there are biological reasons for their mm-hmm. mood disturbance that write themselves, but there could also be psychosocial reasons that they improve that we don't necessarily capture in... Like employment. Exactly. Yeah. Getting a new job, just waking up one day and deciding to do something differently and that has a bit of a snowball effect on their mood. Yeah. So alongside your therapeutic process, time has passed. Mm-hmm. And we can't necessarily, if you're measuring one person before and after, disentangle the effects of your therapy and time. What's another process? Can I go next? Okay. Uh, One of my favorite ones is the the value of the relationship between the therapist and the client. Mm. So we know that the very fact that you are there as a therapist in that room with them, giving them the time to listen and positive regard and providing a safe space for them is so important and I think it's often overlooked as something that is really critical 100% yeah the the fact that you are there and that relationship with your client is a huge contributor to someone's symptoms going down I might be wrong but it's something like a third of the symptom reduction I believe it's much more than that really I think it's about 70% oh I have my numbers the wrong way (laughs) yeah different I think different studies arrive at different figures but generally it may surprise people to learn, and it's a bit of a paradigm shift, I think, but the therapeutic relationship probably accounts for more variance in symptom change yeah, that's right. than any specific treatment skills you impart upon yeah. the client. So I think one message to take away is that if you are in the room with a client and you're feeling stressed and you don't really know what path to take, then I think you can find some comfort in knowing the very fact that you are there trying to do something, working with them is going to contribute to change. Just be nice. Yeah. (laughs) Just be a nice human. Um, And that's going to have a big impact. And as a fun fact, did you know that the more time you spend reflecting on your practice can improve your therapeutic relationship? Very nice. Yeah. So the more time you take kind of reflecting on what's happened can improve your ability to be a nice human in the room, you know, Mm. and really connect with your clients. And that there is just so powerful when it, it is. comes to symptom reduction. And I'm sure things like self-care and making sure that you yeah. are well slept and have recently snacked yeah. could make a big difference. And it's what I think surprising is the large focus of professional development is usually on learning new skills and modalities. Mm. And I think that's really important because people will see clients and they'll conduct a formulation based on their history and they'll think, oh, the, the tools I have in my toolbox are, are, are reasonable. However, I'd really love, I think they're a really good candidate for this kind of therapy. And then we go off and we learn that and we slowly add to our toolbox. And I think that partly the reason that we do that is because we're good clinicians, but also there's a lot of emphasis on treatment being effective only because of the strategies that we use and, it's just not, and the it's skills not right. that we impart. Yeah, it's not true. And that's partly driven by the very thing we're talking about today, yeah. which is the need for evidence. And the, the research studies that are conducted try and really isolate what specific skills we can use and replicate and anyone can use in their clinical practice yeah. to work. And then because of that, we've kind of forgotten about 
what we call the non-specific factors. Yeah. Time, which is perhaps less important to us because we're not going to see somebody who's depressed and say, come back in a month if you're still yeah. feeling not great. <laughs> They're treatment seeking, so we should treat them. <clears throat> but um, really working on, am I being a good therapist to this person? Is the therapeutic relationship we have meeting their needs? Yep. Um, am I providing with them with some, you know, corrective dynamics? Am mm. I, you know, not reinforcing, you know, unhelpful self-critical thinking exactly yeah and so it's it's all those things that you want to really be keeping in mind when you're thinking about providing evidence-based care Mm. remember that you yourself have a really important role in that relationship um and contributing to change one thing amelia just touched on was non-specific factors Mm. so they're things like the time and the relationship but then we have specific factors Mm. So that's what we've been talking about in terms of skills. If someone wants to, they have a specific phobia, for instance, Mm. then we would be thinking about, okay, what is the most evidence-based skill to address specific phobia? Mm. Ding, ding, it's exposure. What a surprise. What a surprise you brought that up. I know. But that is what we would call a specific factor in treatment. Yeah. Actually going through exposure, which, by the way, is we're gradually confronting things that make us scared. So we would go from... I thought you were about to clarify that by saying, which is the right way of doing therapy? Like, everyone knows, Maddie. We know you love behavioural treatments. No. No. For instance, you would go from something a little bit scary, like if you had a fear of heights, you'd go to the first floor, to a medium scary, which is like the fifth floor, to the big scary, which is the top Top floor. Top of the skyscraper. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what we are often referring to when we speak about exposure. Mm. Another, just to kind of hammer that point home, for example, if we take our client with depression, a non-specific factor might be um, the fact that over time they are changing their psychosocial circumstances, they're applying for a new job, and that could be, that's difficult, that may have been partly as a result of insight developed in psychotherapy, which is where it gets really messy. But also there, there's this all this kind of non-specific difficult to capture stuff where they're learning from you that they are a valued person and they're enjoying this space that's safe and confidential Mm. they're all non-specific ideas and then specific ideas would be that they're learning not to buy into ruminative thinking yeah they're learning to stop that or they're learning to get up and exercise in the morning despite the fact they don't really feel like it because they know you don't wait around for motivation you do things despite it and then you feel a sense of you know pleasure exactly. and mastery they're all specific factors that you're likely to be working on in the therapy room with them behavioral activation challenging cognitions or if you're going down another route mindfulness things like that yeah. and i think it's really important to kind of keep in mind that there are undoubtedly interactions and relationships and like back and forth between all these different factors whether they be specific factors or non-specific factors we're not here to kind of say one's more important than the other or for different clients, different factors may exactly. be more or less important. Unfortunately, we just don't have a very good idea about what really contributes to symptom change across psychotherapy. We don't. <laughs> but we will one day. Hopefully. <laughs> so let's take this back to the concept of evidence-based psychotherapy. So hopefully we've done a reasonable job of explaining the reasons people change in psychotherapy mm-hmm. Some of it is a result of the specific treatment that you choose and some of it is a result of the stuff that happens with time alongside the psychotherapy. So how do we separate those two things out? How do we determine if 
CBT, for example, um, improves somebody's symptoms over and above the effect of time or over and above the effect of simply having someone to talk to. So how do you, in other words, control for it? There's a hint. (laughs) (laughs) So one of Amelia's favorite things is a control group. I do enjoy it. I'm a control freak. (laughs) So control groups are the way that we, in inverted commas, control for all of these other things when we're trying to figure out whether one particular factor is contributing to change. So Mm -hmm. please take it away. So if we have two groups of people, one group receive no treatment and one group receive some psychotherapy, do the improvements we observe in the people who receive psychotherapy, are they greater than the improvements we observe in the people who receive nothing. So essentially, if we're doing that over an eight-week period, we're controlling for the effect of time. Exactly. And that's our our minimum requirements. Mm. And let me ask you a question, Maddie. So if I was wanting to do that and I say, well, I've got 10 people in treatment at the moment, I'm going to give them CBT and I'm going to go and find 10 people in the community who also have depression and see how they go over those eight weeks. Have I done a good job? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, no, you What's haven't. What's wrong? Well, I mean, you've just kind of picked them and you put them in the groups you wanted. You mm. could have picked particular people to go in, in the different types of groups. Like I'll put the people who really need treatment in the treatment group, mm. things like that. Or the people who are out there in the community not getting treatment. There might be something about those people mm. who aren't seeking treatment. Maybe there's a lack of insight or they've had previous treatment failures so they're not interested in psychotherapy and therefore I'm not really comparing similar groups of people across time. And that's where the idea of randomization comes in and is really important. So if we had 100 people who were interested in treatment for depression, um, we would randomly allocate them to receive treatment or to receive nothing. Um, And the idea of complete chance being the only reason that they're allocated means hopefully we are able to control for things like pre-existing treatment symptoms things like sex uh, age due to the randomization process all of those characteristics should theoretically be balanced in both groups which is very important yeah so what amelia is explaining here is what we call a randomized control trial there we go write it down Yeah. So when you're thinking about whether you're using evidence-based skills, if it has gone through a randomized control trial and come out the other end as superior to one of these control groups, then I think we can be pretty happy with it. We can. Yeah. So often randomized control trials of treatments, someone will apply, they'll say, hi, I have depression, please treat me. And then the researchers go, no worries, I just need to randomly allocate you first. And then they will be randomly allocated to either the treatment group where they get treatment immediately or often a waitlist control group. You'll Mm. see that term a lot. That just means that they don't receive treatment for the eight weeks or so where the other treatment group is Mm -hmm. just for the fact that they want to compare symptoms and then they'll receive treatment afterwards. So everyone ends up getting treatment, but you can see whether your therapy has been effective relative to a waitlist control. Yeah. Just to hammer a previous non-specific point home, when you look at change in a control group, in a no treatment or in a waitlist, people do improve. People do experience symptom improvement over that time on average across groups. I think that's really important to point out. I think we are trained to believe that unless we intervene, 
people will stay severe or yeah. stay unwell. Yeah. And certainly these people are treatment seeking and they need treatment. But often things do improve over time or people learn new skills on their own merit. Mm. You only need to talk to people who are out, in, out there in the community and ask them if they've ever had periods of low mood in the past. And a lot of people will say, I did, and I didn't seek help and I did get better. Um, so part of evidence-based psychotherapy is figuring out who to treat and when yeah. um, and to not assume that the only way that people will ever improve in their circumstances is to give them treatment it kind of over medicalizes perhaps when people have a period of normal distress for example yeah exactly and often we we already know the skills that or we know what we need to do to kind of have our symptoms get better and we don't always need treatment exactly unpopular opinion (laughs) um a lot of people come into therapy knowing what they need to do, and often you're a source of... Well, I think that's where the therapeutic relationship comes in. Yeah, you're a source of accountability. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's so many ways that therapy works um, yeah. that we can expand our minds to. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so that's a randomized control trial. Now, you'll notice we had two groups in that design, and that's what we want when we're thinking about evidence-based practice. But unfortunately... You will see a lot of trials that only have one group. Mm. We call that a single group pre-post design Mm -hmm. and it's not great. Rubbish. (laughs) We understand that often uh, people don't have the resources to run trials with more than one group. They want to get preliminary evidence that their treatment's working. But as a clinician, we want to take a bit of a sceptical eye and make sure that our treatments are effective compared to control groups. Because otherwise it could just be time. And this is the problem. If I said, Maddie, I've got an idea. I'm going to recruit 20 people with depression and I'm going to try a new therapy I have. It's tying knots in strings of different color. Lovely. I'm going to measure their symptoms. I'm going to say, this is a really helpful activity. Tie five knots a day, please. And I'll (laughs) see you every week as well. Um, So I'm bringing in another non-specific factor there, which is the therapeutic relationship. Those people will get better. Yeah. Their symptoms will improve. But I'd hope that everyone would agree it's not because they're tying knots <laughs> in strings. And that's the literature is just this a proliferation of studies like this yeah. where unfortunately somebody a bit wacko decides that smelling gum leaves or <laughs> crystals. Oh no. Is that a bit? Or drinking hot chocolate or touching their face is a therapy and they have an explanation as to why and they say look my group got better before and after it works I've got something to tell you (laughs) I'm really sorry if I've offended anybody into crystals but it the evidence isn't there I'm sorry (laughs) so I think yeah the main take-home message here is if you're looking for research that backs up your treatment often you're going to find it it doesn't necessarily mean that it's effective. effective yeah there's a difference between something having evidence for it and it actually being effective. Mm-hmm. The other thing I just want to touch on before we move on is uh, you might remember that we spoke about the therapeutic relationship as being a non-specific factor. So we can also control for that in our control group designs in our randomized control trials. Now, Amelia just did a very happy dance, so I'm going to let her take over oh, and explain. Really? <laughs> 
this. Well, I before you said that, I was thinking, oh, it's really nice to tie the idea of these trials where the control group is something like supportive psychotherapy or supportive counselling because um, that does nest with our previous statement about how important the therapeutic relationship is. So if you go back to a randomised controlled trial with a waitlist control, the difference in improvements between our active and our control group is quite large. Yeah. And that tells us that treatment has a big effect. But unfortunately, because the waitlist control don't get any attention or any relationship in between. It only controls for time. It only controls for time. In comparison, if we had a control group where they received some supportive counselling, which is often articulated as an inactive control group when you're looking at something that prefers to impart skills practice. Yeah, it's quite good though. The difference between active treatments such as CBT or mindfulness-based CBT or ACT is the difference between those active and the supportive counselling is much smaller. Yeah. And that's because – and that tells us how important the therapeutic relationship is. Um so skills practice does add benefit above and beyond the therapeutic relationship, but the difference between those two arms is much narrower. Yeah. And so that, that shouldn't dissuade us from imparting skills or ensuring that clients go away with insight and strategies. That, again, just highlights that paying attention to the relationship and the therapeutic alliance and the working alliance is a really important part of evidence-based psychotherapy that we do tend to overlook yeah and when we are looking at an rct with a particular control group what are we looking for in particular so we're looking for an effect size a difference let me word that differently what do some people look for if the treatment group improved more than the control group and that difference was statistically significant from your undergraduate studies, some of you may be familiar with the p-value. If you're not, it's not a big deal. Don't but worry about that's it. That's what we use to determine statistical significance, and most people have this golden cutoff, which I'm eye rolling, as a p of less than 0.05. Essentially, it's a probability statistic that tells us that there's a 95% likelihood that the yeah. difference observed is not due to chance. Yeah. Now I want you to take all of that information. And then forget, forget about it. it. <laughs> it's really not that important for us as clinicians to know a p-value or whatever, and we know that. What we really want to know is whether it's what is that meaningful to me? Do I care about it? Is there going to be a clinically meaningful change as a result of doing this treatment? Exactly. Statistical significance is tied to the number of people you have in your trial. Oh, there's so many. So issues. you could have ten people in each arm and the treatment group do so much better than the control group and they they are all remit they're all you know absent from a diagnosis after treatment the scores on questionnaires improved by you know half, half 50% or more however because you only had 10 people per group you don't have statistical power to determine if that was significant or not and if you then threw that trial away on the basis of it being non-significant you're probably throwing out some babies with some bath waters <laughs> Um, on the other hand, you could have a trial with a thousand people in each group and you're looking at your string tying intervention. <laughs> yes, knots. Yeah, you tied knots. Yeah. And you find that your string tying group improved by one extra point or half a point on a self-report questionnaire. So, um, you know, 2% better 
But because you have a thousand people in each group, you have the statistical power to to find a significant effect. You should throw that. Well, there's no baby in that bathwater. <laughs> um, so let's talk about what does clinically meaningful mean? Yeah. So if you're looking at a trial and they only report statistical significance and they don't mention whether it is clinically meaningful whatsoever, it's probably rubbish, move on. What you want to look at is the trials that say whether something is clinically meaningful because we do have metrics. They're very complicated. I won't explain them, but they will be able to say whether there was a reliable change in the treatment group that is to a clinically meaningful level compared to your control group. It, it will say it in there, there will be a sentence. If it says it's clinically meaningful, we're on. Yeah. Another thing you could do, I mean, unfortunately, statistical significance is here to stay. And if you run it, ran an RCT and submitted it to a, a journal company, a journal publisher, uh, and you didn't report whether the difference between groups was statistically significant, they wouldn't be very happy with that. I mean, we'll be. We publish RCTs. I know. And we put the p-value in. We do. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's here to stay, but we really encourage people to look beyond that. So yeah. most papers these days will report the people's scores on questionnaires before and after. So um, the treatment group went from an average of 20 on this self-report scale of depression to an average of 10 yeah. on this self-report scale of depression, which is quite a large improvement, it's whereas the lot. control group went from 20 to 18. And you can say, well, that's pretty good. Um, so we would also encourage you to look at the questionnaires they use and look at the change in two different groups and determine for yourself, if my client improved by that magnitude, would I be happy with that? Yeah. If it was three points over 16 weeks on a 50-point scale, oh. I wouldn't be happy with that. Yeah. If I was a therapist, well, I am a therapist, if I had a client who after 16 weeks of treatment improved by three points, I wouldn't be counting that as a success. Yeah. So I've been looking forward to this section uh, while thinking about what this podcast episode would look like. Uh, what is better than one randomized control trial, Amelia? Two. Oh, what about 10? What about 20? And that is where we come to a meta-analysis. Yes. So meta-analyses are really cool because a researcher will get all the RCTs about a particular topic. So they get all the RCTs and they put them in a bucket called software <laughs> and then they mix it up and they find out what the difference is between the treatment group and the control group but on a big scale. On a big scale. It might be that one particular research group in Oxford yeah. do a really good job of CBT, yeah. but did the same research group in Melbourne achieve the same effects? We need to know whether it's generalizable, so mm. whether it translates from one research group to another, whether it translates from the ivory tower of research to the community where it actually matters. Yeah. So that's what a meta-analysis can tell us because they compare the results between different studies and say, well, why is one working better than the other? And so when you're looking for, is my uh, treatment choice supported by the evidence? If you can find a meta-analysis of randomized control trials, you're on the right track. You're in luck. So because there's been so much research into psychotherapy and so many randomized controlled trials, meta-analyses are actually really common now. Mm. So you could find a meta-analysis of prolonged exposure for PTSD, for oh, example, for sure. and at least a dozen studies in that yeah. meta-analysis. Yeah. Um, the 
there is actually an online database that contains all of the RCTs ever conducted in depression that we will provide a link to in the show notes. And you can actually search by population, for example, a population of people with chronic health conditions or uh, just youth or or older adults. And you can have a look at all of the studies and the the website will actually give you an overall effect size yeah. to tell you how efficacious uh, psychotherapy was in that population. Or you can look at all over. I think there's about 400 or 500 studies in that there's database. Yeah. It's continually being updated. It's really cool. Yeah. So there are heaps of resources out there to kind of see whether your treatment of choice is effective. They're not all equal. And I know that we've uh, kind of banged on about how RCTs are you know the best thing ever but they're really you know you should take them with a grain of salt I guess Mm. is what I'm about to say Uh, because in research often the people who get into a randomized control trial are not the people you would see in the community so they have to jump through a remarkable amount of hoops okay I need you to be between the ages of 18 and 64 or I need you to not have any comorbid health conditions. Or, or never have you... received treatment before. No, no concurrent treatment. You need to be able to, I don't know, do gymnastics at this rate. <laughs> um, you need to not have any comorbidity. Yeah. Often, so, <laughs> unfortunately, a lot of these RCTs at the sniff of any access to yeah. or personality features, Goodbye. you're not in the trial. And you can imagine that that really restricts who is going into the studies that are providing you with the evidence that then you're going to use to support it in the community. Yeah. So one, yeah, we we kind of just want to highlight that while randomized control tiles are the best we've got, they're not perfect. And then the other thing about an RCT is that they deliver treatments very strictly. Yeah, often. According to a protocol. So it looks like, okay, we're going to give you five lessons over eight weeks. You can speak to your clinician for X number of minutes a week and there's very limited flexibility. Hmm. As a clinician, we know that that's really not how it goes. And that that rigidity, that flexibility seems to work well. People often have to turn up weekly and the clinicians are being monitored for fidelity to the treatment. Um, But we know that that's not necessarily how everyday clinical practice runs, how it works. And also one I don't know, issue I have with randomized control trials is that they often exclude people at high risk or even moderate risk sometimes of suicidality or self-harm. This is perhaps counterintuitive. Who are the people that need treatment? The people at high risk? You'd think so. But often they don't come into RCTs because they're complex. They're going to mess up people's results. They're going to say, oh no, my treatment's not as effective as I wanted it to be. Go away. And so they get excluded. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. So if you have someone who is perhaps uh, at a high risk or a moderate risk and you're looking at trials where they've excluded all those people, find a better one. And it kind of suggests that maybe there's no evidence to kind of support that treatment for that population. I'm not saying it won't work but it's just it might not be out there. Mm. We should probably give credit to the trials that are trying to be more inclusive and include comorbidities and that look at complex personality disorders as part of treatment as well. Um, Inherently more difficult to get through ethics to keep safety monitoring, but 
well worth the well worth it the effort yeah. to do and they certainly exist it just so happens that a lot of the bread and butter previous rcts have looked at single disorder relatively non-complex often treatment naive people yeah. because that gives you a lovely large effect and everybody loves a large effect yes yeah so takeaways takeaways don't forget about how important you are as a therapist in that room I'm speaking about the working alliance, the relationship you have with your clients. Are you working towards a common goal? Are you being nice? Are you being there and providing a safe space for them? That is so important and, yeah, don't overlook it. Yeah, when there are little ruptures, do you spend the time repairing and modelling what it's like to have a relationship that can withstand disagreements and, um, you know, goal disparities, for example? Yeah, don't don't overlook it, I guess, when you're thinking about whether your practice is evidence-based. That statement is so consistent with evidence-based practice, but people who spend a lot of time thinking about evidence-based practice unfortunately often don't think about it because they're so focused on treatment-specific factors. So yeah. take that. Yes. Point take, two. <laughs> point two, that there's a difference between non-specific factors and specific factors in treatment. We've got those non-specific factors, time, the relationship, all the other things that happen in someone's life outside the therapy room as well. And then we have the specific factors like the skills. And typically the RCTs are only looking at the specific factors. Mm. Never trust a single group pre-post design. Never. Control groups are really important for us to make sure that treatments are working over and above time, which heals many ills. Yeah. And write down randomized control trial and meta-analysis if you're going to Google whether your treatment of choice is effective. And we accept the limitations of RCTs. We know that they're not perfect and we know that the clinical world on the ground is much far more messy and complex than the research world that seeks to inform the clinical world. Um, yeah. But that's something that both of us are interested in in our careers yeah. and hopefully the implementation of good research into clinical spaces will be better over time. And if you have lasted through this whole thing, great work. And I hope that we've helped you make looking at the research literature and figuring out for yourselves what is and what isn't evidence-based practice a little bit less daunting yeah a bit easier a bit easier if if not just remember be nice exactly i think that's yeah